0: Chicago's all news station, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Great to have you with us for the Thursday edition of the Noon Business Hour. I'm Cisco Kodu Right now, the weekly jobless claim numbers out. A vote to avoid a partial shutdown of the federal government expected this afternoon. Let's get some insight from Diane Swong, Chief Economist at Grant Thornton here in Chicago. Diane, let's begin with this partial government shutdown. It sounds like there is a deal in the Senate. How important is it to the wider economy that something gets done?
1: Well it's really important at this stage of the game. We're still in a pandemic. We don't need to add insult to injury and as we've already heard, jobless claims are now going up instead of down again as we dealt with the Delta variant and labor and shortages, not just labor issues, but shortages due to supply chain problems, notably in the chip sector. We actually idled some auto plants because the Delta variant hit places like Vietnam and Malaysia that escaped earlier waves of COVID and they actually had to idle some plants in the supply chain for chip production. So these are really important issues and you don't want to add insult to injury. And also, a partial government shutdown could compromise some of uh, what we're doing in terms of vaccines, how we're staying ahead of uh, tracking the virus, treatments, and also new iterations of boosters to deal with any variants that come out. So we don't want to do that at this critical stage of- of the
0: game seems like this you know comes up quite often here government shutdowns I mean, that's just a a symptom of what goes on in washington and yet as you're mentioning here this isn't an ordinary time here we're trying to rebound from a pandemic
1: Exactly, and you know, I mean, I I just am an equal opportunity offender here because I find um, both parties have offended me on this topic. I think it's really important that you know political shenanigans really need to be put aside for something like the government um, continuing to open, at least pass a continuing resolution, which looks like they probably will do, and certainly do not flirt with the debt ceiling issues. That is a the debt ceiling is used to um, it, it's sort of an artifact from a previous era. It used to not have any political weight. We saw. In 2011, we actually got downgraded on our debt because of all the political shenanigans around lifting the debt ceiling. It's you know this is debt we already owe. This is reneging on our opera, on, on our obligations. So all of that uncertainty is clearly um, leaving the markets churning and quite volatile at the moment.
0: Let's talk about jobless claims. They rise more than expected. Three hundred sixty-two thousand. A few weeks of increases here.
1: Yes, we have seen that, and that is, again, in the wake of the Delta variant, there is the auto-related stuff, idled auto plants due to chip production um, shortages, but then there's also layoffs in retail and in leisure and hospitality. We also lost more than 6 million workers. We found that the data comes out lagged for the week ending September 11th. That was the week that those expansions to and supplements to unemployment insurance lapsed, and over 6 million workers fell off the um, unemployment insurance um, payroll insurance in, the, in that week, and that's a lot. And in fact, um, surveys of workers through the course of September, even though we started to see a little bit of a reacceleration in consumer spending in the latter part of September, um, many families started to feel much more economic pain because there's, you know, some lag in terms of the layoffs in leisure and hospitality and retail and all of a sudden the hiring, not as robust as it had been earlier in the summer.
0: Thanks so much, Diane Swank. Good to have you joining us, Chief economist at Grant Thornton here in Chicago. Now that the Bears have signed a purchase agreement for the 326 acres along Arlington Park, where the racetrack is, uh, it is now, but it's heading out, Attention's uh, turning to a new stadium and how it will be financed. Who's going to pay for it? Let's discuss the possibilities with Danny Ecker, reporter at Crane's Chicago Business. Uh, Danny, I, I want to begin with possible state funding or, or state help here because I found it interesting. You have Governor Pritzker, who's kind of caught between Chicago and in the suburbs. And yesterday he was saying, eh, we, we got bigger financial problems. We we don't want to touch this yet.
2: Yeah. I don't think, uh, the state's going to be in play here. I wouldn't expect it to at least, uh, you know, in terms of uh, public subsidy for a stadium, remember this is a team that is talking about potentially building a stadium, you know, in the suburbs, not leaving and moving to Florida. So, you know, this is still a, uh, going to be an economic generator for the region, just maybe not, or downtown as much as the suburbs.
0: So let's talk about who is going to pay for this. Uh, many people have pointed out the owners of the Bears don't have some outside business where they've gotten wealthy. I mean, the Bears really is what they have, so they need to figure out how they're going to pay for this.
2: Right. It's kind of the next step here, right, is figuring out, all right, first of all, what are they going to build? What's the scale of what they're going to do there beyond just a stadium? Is it going to be a mixed-use development that they Uh, would want to participate in, where they sell off some of the land to other developers? But then, you know, it's probably going to cost, based on what other stadiums have have cost to build in recent years, you know, upwards of $2 billion to build a a state-of-the-art NFL stadium there. And, you know, that is something that they could probably do with some creative uh, financing when you think about Uh, The NFL has a loan program to help with the bill. They would, uh, I'm sure, be able to sell personal seat licenses and suites and uh, then just borrow against a lot of the income they have from television rights and and other sources of income the team has. So something they probably could do themselves. But will they take on a new financial partner? Um, How will that impact the ownership of the team? You have other uh, very um, uh, well-heeled investors like Pat Ryan, who own large shares of the team. So it's going to be very interesting to see uh, if this all moves forward, how they come up with the money to build a massive stadium.
0: Yeah, because they they not only need the money up front in order to get it done, but they need to be able to pay that back over a period of years.
2: Right. And, you know, again, there's, there's all kinds of factors here. I mean, this is a, like any multi-generational company, um, this is a third generation ownership now of the family that's kind of had a splintered ownership group, a lot of different voices in play. And how does that impact? Also, um, you know, do they have do they have uh, people that are they going to sell a portion of the team? You know, and how does that affect the controlling stake in the team? There's there's all kinds of other implications for taking on a a large venture that would uh, add you know uh, two billion dollars and uh, to the to the team's value and maybe uh also add in some debt on the team which it historically hasn't had
0: a lot of teams have made a lot of money off of personal seat licenses and the bears have made some money off that too i talked with one longtime season ticket holder just yesterday who is afraid hey hey, what's going to happen with the current psls are the bears going to try to use that to help finance the new stadium
2: good question. uh you yeah. know these are things that are um you know, all all to be answered hopefully in the next couple of years. But they, you know, that this is a again, it's a highly lucrative uh, business that the Bears are in, and um, I think they also see how much money yet they are still leaving on the table because they don't own their own stadium and don't have their uh, something they can activate year round with concerts and other major events and that's something they want to chase here and uh you know uh, ultimately i would not be surprised if fans and personal seat license owners are 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 the ones that helped in a big way flip the bill
0: yeah you mentioned the the year round nature of this they i'm guessing are going to have to figure out okay how much can we really make off of this in order to figure out how to balance the books in order to get this done how you know how how valuable would that piece of property really be with a stadium or mixed use development on it
2: it's hugely valuable i mean this is Think about just naming rights to a stadium alone. That's one small piece of the puzzle. That's probably ten to twenty million dollars a year um, that the Bears don't have at Soldier Field. Um, you know, it's unclear whether the Bears would be able to open a sports betting operation at Soldier Field, given that it's owned by the Chicago Park District and the city doesn't want to cannibalize a casino. So that's something they would likely be able to do at a new stadium um, in Arlington Heights. And, you know, those are just two among the many. I mean, these stadiums really are developed these days as, you know, multi-use campuses that have, uh, you know, other space for events and retail and restaurants. And that's something that you would think would be, you know, built in as part of, of anything that, Really, there's no room for in a significant way uh, around Soldier Field, and, and that's really what's pushed the Bears to pursue this in the first place.
0: Always good to get your insight. That's Danny Ecker. He's a reporter. You read him in print and online at Crane's Chicago Business.
3: The WBB at Noon Business Hour
0: continues. Bed Bath & Beyond is among the many retailers dealing with problems because of breaks in the supply chain. Let's get the latest from Gerald Storch. He's CEO of Storch Advisors, former vice chairman at Target, chairman and CEO of Toys R Us. Uh, Jerry, we got Bed Bath & Beyond today. Let's see, the stock down right now about 21%. They're saying supply chain issues and also inflation are the issues. What's going on here?
3: Hey, I think those issues are real and they're faced by all retailers, but I would not generalize from the poor performance of this one company to retail at large. I think people make a big mistake when they do that. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more from Walmart, Target, Costco, Best Buy, Home Depot, some of the winners, uh, as opposed to this company that was actually losing pretty badly before the pandemic. They did well during the pandemic because of course, they sold home goods, which everyone wanted to buy during the pandemic. Now they're back on their losing weight. I don't think that means anything, frankly. And Their sales were down over 20%, and uh, that's not true for retail as a whole. where sales were up very sharply during the recent quarter. So I think this says more about that beyond than it does about retail in general.
0: And as you mentioned, they've been struggling for a while. You you had the pressure of uh, the the, the coupons. Their, Their customers got used to needing a coupon before they went in there, which, of course, challenges any business model.
3: Look, this is one of the big meme stocks. The stock ran way up. It was never justified, I have to tell you. I never believed it was real. I don't think it's real. While it has a new, they have a new CEO, who I think is doing a good job, when you look at what he's really doing, it's not earth-shattering. So he's introducing more private label, and he's remodeling some stores. But that doesn't drive much much in the way of sales in the short term. So that can't be what happened that was going right before, and it's certainly not what's going wrong now. Uh, what's going wrong now is that they've been one of the losers for over a decade, almost 20 years. Same thing's true about a whole slew of companies I'd be very cautious about, like Macy's that may say, oh, we're doing great, all our strategies are working now, or they're working because we're coming out of the pandemic. Let's see what happens to the other big retailers when they report if They're as strong as I think they're going to be. What we're going to see is, actually, this is a sign we're coming out of the pandemic, not into the pandemic, or not that the pandemic is some kind of overhang on this, and people are going back to their former shopping habits. In terms of supply chain issues and inflation, very, very real issues, but I think most of the strong retailers will be able to overcome them.
0: Thanks so much. Always good to get your insight. Gerald Storch, CEO of Storch Advisors, former vice chairman at Target, chairman and CEO of Toys R Us previously. This is Chicago's all news station, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon, thanks for joining us. I'm Cisco Coto. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. Congress is expected to pass a funding bill this afternoon, avoiding a partial government shutdown. Beachgoers in Northwest Indiana are given the all clear following a leak at a steelmaking facility. It's Technology Thursday. The National Football League is launching its own marketplace for non fungible tokens. Companies are working on longer range batteries and faster charging stations for electric vehicles the noon business hour is presented by the village of bedford park let's see what's going on art hogan is here chief market strategist at national securities based in new york art what do you make of what you're seeing on wall street today
4: yeah kind of a tough day to end a what's been a pretty tough month here um in stocks and and that's historically appropriate Uh, september has always been a rough month uh, for markets. And this one is, uh, certainly, um, read the script for sure. So I think what's happened is, you know, as we, um, as we entered the month, investors certainly shifted from what had been, uh, a more, um, uh, casual attitude about how things were going to a more cautious attitude. So the, the, culmination of getting a lot of logistical uh, log jams continuing because of the Delta 19 variant and difficulty getting aggregate supply to meet aggregate demand started to show up in, 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 in all sorts of industries at the very same time we it's a month where we're trying to get a lot of, Accomplished in Washington, and no one likes to watch that sausage be made. So the gridlock around things like a debt ceiling, which likely is going to pass, and and, a government shutdown, which is likely not to happen. But more importantly, getting that bipartisan infrastructure bill passed. Watching that happen is difficult for investors at the very best. And at the same time, you've got the chairman of the Federal Reserve talking about inflation pressures being longer and more frustrating than they had first thought. So transitory has turned from three to six months to six to... 12 months, if you will. So it's going to take a while longer for some of these uh, sticky inflation numbers to start coming down, and that is investors thinking about profit margins. So you put all that in a basket and wrap it up with a bow that is the last day of a quarter, and you get some unusual market activity like we're seeing today. So with all of that said, we've got a uh, month where the SP 500 is down 4% and still up 15% year to date. So not a disaster or not the beginning of something large, but you know maybe the first time we've seen a significant drawdown in an extended period of time.
0: What do investors think of transitory inflation that may go on for two years or so? I mean, it seems like that's going to have an impact on portfolios and earnings. It's going to be kind of rough.
4: Yeah, and it certainly will be rough. And it depends on what you're looking at, right? So So transitory inflation certainly means a a lot of different things. So for example, if we think about some of the industrial materials, uh, lumber, steel, iron ore, et cetera, a lot of those prices have already rolled over. And and so commodity prices tend to find a supply response faster than other things like finished products, semiconductors, for example, which have very long lead times. So when you think about what is going to cause difficulties in getting uh, finished goods produced And some of the products like semiconductors will continue to be in short supply for an extended period of time. That becomes a concern because semiconductors are in everything. So I think you have to knock these things down one at a time, right, and and say, how long will it take to get that supply response and those things that have inflated prices? We've certainly seen agricultural prices peak and then roll over, and I think that's a good thing. I think in terms of the labor market, we're, we're going to, on a monthly basis, heading into the fall here, start to see more people join the workforce for a, for a myriad of reasons, and I think that that's going to help uh, and, and loosen up that logjam that is services. But I think that in terms of knowing coming out of a pandemic when we virtually shut the economy down, how fast manufacturing could ramp back up to meet the explosive demand we've seen, it's hard to... to, to to, to really map that out. And I think that uh, if we were to look three months from now, we'd, we'd likely say some of the pressures come off the, uh, you know the West Coast ports in LA, and and uh, and and we'll likely be able to say that uh, more people have joined the labor force. will likely be able to say that we're seeing an increase in supply. Some of those things that seem to be much more scarce, it's just not going to happen as quickly as we'd like.
0: And getting people back to work, I mean, it's important so that they have money to spend. Uh, but it would seem as though there are certain sectors. I think of you know, fast food restaurants, retails. Uh, you're ending up in a situation where they can't serve as many customers. They can't give the quality service that they would normally give because they just don't have enough people.
4: It sure is the case right now. And and you take a combination of things, right? You take a whole puzzle of things and, and try to put it together to figure out why. First and foremost you have to feel safe about getting back in the workforce. That likely wasn't happening in the end happening in the end of July and August because of the Delta variant. You have to get schools reopened and daycare centers open so that the child care providers could get actually back into the workplace and and and, and have that relief. You also have to and the, the the extended unemployment benefits, which happened in September. You have to put all those things together and, and and have a higher percentage of the population that's vaccinated to have people feel more comfortable. And the other piece of the puzzle is the U.S. savings rate is at, at near historic highs, so people have a cushion. So I think people that that you know were contemplating going back to work have had reasons to be slow about it if they were hesitant. Those reasons are starting to dissipate. And I think as more people join the labor force, that pressure for people to get people to work is going to come down. Again, that's just taking a bit longer than we had hoped, but certainly is starting to improve on a sequential basis month over
0: month. Thanks so much for all the analysis. That's Art Hogan. He is chief market strategist at National Securities information to make cash and save cash. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Technology Thursday. The NFL is the latest sports league to embrace non-fungible tokens as collectibles. Let's learn more from Shelley Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group, author of the new book, An Executive Guide to the World of Decentralized Finance. Uh, Shelley, we've talked with you about NFTs quite a bit, and you've expressed the fact that you, you, don't, you don't quite believe this. <laughs> you can't believe how this is taking off. And, and yet Organizations like the NFL must at least see in the short run that there's some money to be made here.
5: It absolutely only sees that at the moment. The good news is that that's not the only reason to do an NFT. Look, Dapper Labs starts in 2017 with CryptoKitties. They've made their name uh, even bigger with NBA Top Shot, and um, they've, I think, done almost $800 million in NFT sales, selling collectible moments from basketball, and now they're going to sell collectible moments from football. Yes, you could right-click them and own them for free, but you'll, you'll pay money in order to have them and have them for posterity. The good news here, though, is that this all leads to the world of decentralized finance and Web 3.0. And ultimately, NFTs uh, have much greater uses over time than simply digital collectibles. We're going to see it used for ticketing and the Know Your Customer KYC um, requirements for dealing with nFTs because they're they're actually capital gains taxable they're considered digital assets are going to allow organizations like the NFL to get first party data they'd never be able to ordinarily get so there's actually a silver lining to this cloud and you know Cisco I, it's not that I don't believe in STS. I believe in them deeply I just know they have a greater purpose than the way they're being used right now right now we're in the fad uh, stage but this is an on- ramp to a much deeper much richer, uh, world of web 3.0 and decentralized
0: finance yeah because for most people i mean the idea of buying a piece of uh, digital art when you can just google it and see the exact same thing i mean, it's, it's just not that attractive and yet what you're saying is it's the underlying technology it's really valuable they're playing around with it now but eventually this is something that we're just about all going to use
5: You know, if you think back on the very early days of the web, no one quite knew what to do with a website. No one quite knew what to do with any of it. And ultimately, look, we've got a world of e-commerce and digital video and digital audio, and it's a fantastic uh, world with decentralized and democratized information. Well, this is what's going to happen to finance, Cisco. you're, You're at the very cusp, the very beginning of this world where, you don't need anyone's permission to start a bank. You don't need anybody's permission to issue a currency. You don't need, when you create value, you can be rewarded for creating value on a coin of your own making, and people will trade it. And this is the beginning of that, uh, an international world of decentralized finance. And look, the NFL is, is capitalizing on a fad right now, which, again, I feel is going to turn into something greater. At the moment, it's just about money. Good for them. They'll make a little. Yeah, right. Yeah, take
0: advantage of it for sure. Thanks so much, Shelly Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group. A deposit for your future. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Efforts are underway to more quickly charge electric vehicles and extend their range. Well, let's get the latest now. Jeff Gilbert is joining us, CBS Auto reporter based in Detroit. Jeff, uh, give us the lowdown here. What are they trying to do here with these EVs?
6: Well, of course, recharging is a big issue because theoretically you'd like to get it down to the five minutes that it takes to fill up a tank of gasoline. But a company called ABB in Europe says it's come up with a charger that can recharge... Any electric vehicle in 15 minutes. Now, if that works for any electric vehicle, that would be a significant breakthrough. Not quite to where we want to be, but, boy, a big improvement.
0: Right now, to recharge this, it can take a long time. And when people want to take, say, a cross-country trip, they don't necessarily want to have to tack on an extra few hours in order for all those long charging stops.
6: Right, and that is a big issue for anybody wanting to take a trip. I mean, a number of people took EVs up to northern Michigan this year. Finding chargers can sometimes be a problem. And, And again, the fastest fast chargers today can do a good job of filling you up to about 80% in a half an hour, but a half an hour is still a long time when you're going cross country. And when you cut down a two to 300-mile range by 80%, that means more frequent fill-ups. So they're still not really practical for long trips.
0: And going forward, I mean, we would expect that this technology would just continue to be built upon, right? And and getting that time down, as you mentioned, to just a matter of minutes?
6: Exactly, and and this is a situation where, you know, they're talking about installing new charging networks that may be obsolete as soon as they're installed if you have this breakthrough on this kind of charger. So that's how fast this technology is developing as well as the battery technology. You know, the batteries that we have today will be primitive Uh, Come 2030, 2035, there's so much research being
0: done. Yeah, because one of the things that people have wondered about is in an urban environment like here in Chicago, uh, you have cars parked on streets and neighborhoods all around the city in order to create a network of chargers for all those cars to be charging overnight. I mean, that just seems impossible. But if you continue with some kind of a breakthrough like this, then you don't need all of that infrastructure in order to allow EVs to take off.
6: Exactly. And those are the two big charging issues, trips and people who don't have garages. I mean, if you have a garage and commute, then an EV is, is really perfect for you. But not everybody is in that position, and there, there's still a lot of talk about how do you do this in neighborhoods in urban areas like chicago where there there is no plug nearby so you know you may start seeing some of these popping up in neighborhoods before too much
0: longer is this one of the reasons why no matter what the electric vehicle is they're going to have to keep a universal plug for these vehicles no matter who manufactures them i mean most of our electronics here you know everyone has their own charger style that they choose but you can't do that if you're going to have people pulling into these charging stations
6: Well, there is a universal plug for everybody but Tesla. Tesla has its own charging ecosystem, and and they're actually planning to open that up to others. There is an adapter you can get. But at at this particular point, you really have two choices in plugs, Tesla and everybody else.
0: Really interesting developments. Thank you so much, Jeff Gilbert. He is CBS Auto Reporter based in Detroit.